0: Hey, Reed, what's going on? Not much, Matt. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Yeah, we've been trying to do this since we were hanging out together at Porkfest in New Hampshire in July. So it's kind of cool to to finally connect and, and have this conversation.
1: Yeah, well, you can only keep the mustaches and the liberty movement apart for so long. So, you know, John Stossel, you're next if you see this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You You conducted... Hey, I feel like a very biased uh
0: poll on Twitter because there were a lot of people that were giving Stossel the shout out, but but I feel the real fight for for the most epic liberty mustache is either you or me. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm biased. I I think it's me.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you you keep distracting from it with, you know, other facial hair. You used to have just the mustache, but you keep yeah. like beard and you know doing stuff so i don't know that that's that's a little bit of a problem probably but
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, I'm sometimes i'm off my own brand because i don't i don't have a brand so but you've but, had your thing for a while now is the stash the brand i guess i mean
1: i started my uh, podcast last may and what i have been doing for the last several years is i grow a beard in the winter And then I would shave it off in April or May. And I was just standing in front of the mirror and started shaving. And I just thought it'd be funny to leave a mustache for once. And then I was like, hey, you know, that actually doesn't look that ridiculous. And it's kind of hard. I mean, as you know, like, I I feel like not too many people actually look good in a mustache. You kind of have to have the right uh, face for it. And then I was just like, yeah, that kind of works. And it was at the same time I started my show. So... It just kind of became a thing. Uh, Last winter, I did grow the beard out again, and I probably will this year. And and that way, people can anticipate the spring for the return of the stash. You know, it it was kind of a big thing this year when I brought it back. So I think I'm going to keep doing that. Uh, You know, no shave November, go back to the beard, and then keep it till the spring and get everyone excited again. So, So you're thinking like
0: a huge cultural event every spring, like where people sort of wait for this.
1: Yeah, I mean maybe people don't have enough to entertain themselves with anymore but they do care about this type of shit now so it's kind of weird (laughs) so you know you you got you got to run with it when you captivate an audience
0: yeah you were you were talking about this and and i definitely want to talk more about tulsi Tulsi gabbard um a candidate that you supported in 2020 Um, but but you touched on something that is is true not just of politics but i think of all sort of public life that your appearance and certain things about you ultimately end up being more important to people than, than what you have to say and whether or not you know what you're talking about. And that, that may be a bad thing, but it's also just the way it is.
1: Yeah. Um, it's been a hard thing for me to process because I really want people to care about what people are saying instead of, you know, if they're hot or a cute old man or whatever. And I feel like the last time we saw that was with ron paul i mean people really liked him because of what he said there wasn't really any you know i mean if you looked at his campaign posters they were all about things he was saying it wasn't like bernie sanders hair or you know tulsi gabbard's white streak in her hair or you know like whatever people use you know it's always some some quirk about their physical appearance but with him it was just like wow this guy is honest and just says whatever he thinks, regardless of whether or not it's popular. So I really want to see that come back. But I've realized if that doesn't have a resurgence, then we have to actually hijack personalities or facial hair or, you know, whatever it is to try to get people's attention and run with it. So I've actually evolved over time trying to, you know, on Twitter, I'm pretty, I have a pretty fiery personality and it's, that wasn't the way I was when I first started there. It was actually pretty, uh, even keeled, but I realized you just don't get any traction. You don't get any attention. So you actually have to embrace some of the ideas that the people we hate, uh, not not their ideas, but their tactics that they use to push people toward your ideas. So it's been a kind of weird, um, realization I've come to, but I think I'm, I think I'm getting the hang of it. You know, I think I'm, (laughs) I think I'm starting to figure out how to fine tune it and do it well.
0: Yeah. Like, uh, To me, like, uh, Ron Paul's sex appeal was the fact that he was the same guy he always was. And in that, in that case, his gimmick, which isn't a gimmick at all is authenticity. Um, you know, it's a buzzword, but it, I think the reason that, that people were into Ron Paul is like, wow, I've never actually heard a politician tell me the truth before. And I may not like the truth, but he's saying it. And I think that's refreshing relative to everything that i've been spoon-fed my entire life so i think i i'm hoping for the counter revolution where ideas and values and and telling difficult truths can be a thing but it's um it's all wrapped into this pop culture package and and we'll have to work our way through that but i want to start like there's a bunch of stuff i want to talk to you about and i definitely want you to sort of introduce yourself to the folks in my audience that that don't know you yet but I was thinking. Uh, I think it was yesterday. I read this old um, interview with one of my childhood heroes, a guy named Neil Peart. He was a drummer for a band called Rush, and and when I when I was a kid, I sort of looked up to him, and I I took some some leads about how to live my live my life from him. And he was giving this interview in 1997 in an old libertarian magazine called Liberty. And he was, uh, you know, he started off uh, loving Ayn Rand and he went through his objectivist phase and, and definitely in 1997, he's still a pretty hardcore libertarian, but he was complaining about the movement and he might've been talking more about objectivists than libertarians, but he was, he said something that was sort of profound in its simplicity. It's like, I get frustrated because all of these libertarians spend all of their time intellectualizing and telling other people how to live a good life, and I'm paraphrasing, instead of actually going out and developing a skill and learning a craft and working really hard and doing something and sort of living your values through what you do. And I was thinking of that in the context of our conversation tonight because you have a day job, right? You actually yeah. do something. You, you drive an 18 wheeler, is that right?
1: yeah it's actually got more than 18 wheels because I'm a heavy haul truck driver so uh, yeah but I move uh, heavy equipment uh, around the western states so how many wheels is that like
0: uh, how 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 high can we go on this thing
1: uh, the actually, I think it's 50 is the most wheels I've had at once right that's eleven axles so now 40, 40 wheels I've uh, I've run 40 wheels at once oh, wow. um, two hundred thirty six thousand pound gross weight yeah uh, yeah moving you know just I mean the stuff we move out here is crazy I'm from the east coast but out here um, they just throw it on and go I mean back east there's you wouldn't fit under the bridges you wouldn't fit around the corners and uh, when I came out here it's pretty intimidating but you know you just throw one piece at a time on and you go and then you graduate to the next biggest thing and you go and you just keep going until you're moving stuff that you're like wow I you know a year ago there's no way this would have been possible but um yeah it, it's crazy man
0: <laughs> and and sometimes you do your vodcast in the in the cab of your truck right
1: yeah so um i actually started the podcast in between jobs because i used to live in new hampshire and then i decided to quit um i was doing power line work out there and i, I had a cdl to drive the bucket trucks around And we did have one tractor trailer where we moved some heavy equipment but I just wanted to get out on the open road and drive all the time. Uh, So I quit my job in December of 2019 and obviously didn't know that the COVID hysteria was on the way. And I was um, doing a bunch of different job interviews uh, in Western States and then suddenly COVID hit in March and everything fell through the floor. So I was actually Uh, hiding out at my aunt and uncle's place in the mountains in Colorado. They were building a new house up there. And that's when I started my podcast because I was just kind of had a bunch of free time and was alone and uh, started doing it there. And then I got a job in Utah. And then once I had the job in Utah, I just started doing it out of the cab of the truck when I was on the road. And uh, the first time I did that, I realized, wow, this actually adds a different level of grit to the podcast. You know, Instead of always doing it in a studio, And so then i started occasionally filming like hey this is what i'm hauling today i'd walk around the trailer show everyone the bulldozer or excavator whatever is on the back and i've tried to make the podcast a journey you know where the audience can kind of come along with me see what i'm doing and um it's like you said you know libertarians have not connected with the working class very well Um, And even the people who try to, it's very rare that you actually have someone who's doing a podcast or writing a book or doing speeches, who's actually a blue collar worker themselves, they might be able to resonate with them. But I thought it would be cool to actually have a guy who's on the road, you know, working all the time, who's paying attention to what's going on. Uh, So I'm I'm almost like the opposite of most podcasters because most of them are you know, intellectuals in the theory world who are trying to connect with the everyday people. And I'm almost the opposite. I'm one of the everyday guys who tries to connect with the intellectuals and then show the people around me, like, hey, this is, you know, you you know how you hate the DOT screwing up your day and passing all these dumb laws and making your job harder. This is why that's happening, you know, check out these guys. So I'm kind of like a bridge and uh, it's been pretty cool. I I think I kind of filled a void that, wasn't really there.
0: Do you think, um, I mean, I, 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 believe, and you may totally disagree with me, but I, I believe that there is sort of, a uh, part of our genetics as Americans and maybe as human beings, but definitely Americans is there, there's a Liberty thing in there. We, we have an instinct. We have a, we have a gut sort of, uh, uh, craving for Liberty. Do you, do you see that when you're when you're hanging out at a at a truck stop and and just with random people you talk to, or or do you think that I'm hopelessly naive and we're all screwed?
1: Um, I think there's a desire for it, but not a drive for it. So they they like the idea; it sounds cool, it sounds sexy, but no one's willing to change anything about themselves to get there. Where we used to not be that way at all. We used to be very driven for change, for opportunity, for liberty. we move across the country. The pioneers pushed west, you know, people were always advancing uh, with science and technology, but it's kind of died. Comfort has become king, you know, stimulation over fulfillment. And um, I've tried to live the very opposite way. You know, I I live, I'm I'm kind of a minimalist. I'd, I'd rather have a life full of experiences with very little stuff because when you die, I mean, who cares about how much stuff you've accumulated and how comfortable you've been? I want to be remembered for what I did, and I want to be an influence on other people, try to change the world while I'm here. Um, And I do find that that's really not the, uh, you know, that's not the overwhelming consensus among people. I think they really uh, have kind of adopted a brave new world um, outlook on things. You know, it's all about, what is going to make me happy in the moment, not you know, not what's going to make me happy farther down the road, what's going to be uh, consequential uh, for the long term. It's it's all about, am I stimulated right now? And I think that is probably the biggest threat to liberty because that's how they always take it from us. They always it's always instant gratification. Are you scared of this right now? Well, let us do this and we'll take that fear away. <laughs> you know, so I think I think that's. Uh, apathy is one of the biggest enemies we have to beat
0: yeah like um i I would replace the word happiness with comfort and i I feel like it it may be a, a a battle between instant comfort you know do i feel safe am i satiated am i well fed do i have to work or can i just sort of glide along through life versus like the pursuit of happiness and all that that grit that you're talking about and and the discomfort that comes from trying to do something, you don't know if you're gonna be able to pull it off. You know, it's pretty satisfying. I I gotta believe that that gear, once you got it to where it needed to be for the first time, you're like, well, I was kind of
1: scared shitless, but that was awesome. I did that. Yeah, I mean, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. Um, Yeah, I mean, it comes from my upbringing. My parents were, uh, they were very hands-off and they were very, Uh, their their philosophy was when you go outside just don't get killed and just come back before it's dark and other than that it was completely whatever you want to do if you guys want to go hiking if you want to go out in the woods where we can't even see you if you want to you know play with fireworks whatever like it was just it was just pretty wild Uh, and then when I was a teenager it was still that way like they would uh, let me drive a hundred miles away with a couple of my friends and do a 30 mile backpacking trip over the weekend and You know, this was I didn't even have a cell phone at the time. And, you know, we could have gotten lost. We could have, you know, frozen to death. Like I I did hiking trips in the middle of the winter when it was 30 below zero. And they just let us do that type of stuff. And I feel like the, you know, where this is all killed is when people are being brought up because parents are so overbearing. They're so worried about safety. They're so worried about coddling their kids that when kids are becoming teenagers now they're not thinking about what adventurous thing can i go do uh because they've just been sheltered from that their entire lives because sometimes i would take people who were uh teenagers hiking or you know would go jump in the pool at the waterfall where it's a 25 foot jump or something everyone's just terrified like what are you doing this is so insane where i feel like you know 40 years ago that was kind of more the norm that was just what you did when you were a teenager and a kid growing up but Um, I don't know, man. I I just think it's uh, parenting is where it's gone wrong and just overprotection from a really young age. And then it's just, you know, all the institutions have become that way, too. It's all about safety. And it's not about living to your fullest potential and taking risks anymore. And that's really what, you know, capitalism, libertarianism, freedom is all about. It's all about taking risks. It's all about open-ended questions, not knowing where things are going to go. And we've been taught to Fear that,
0: yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I actually, um, in the context of uh, COVID lockdowns and zero COVID, and all of these insane things that that you and I and a bunch of our colleagues have been railing about, I, I called it safetyism, and it, it's this this idea that you never have to um, feel uncomfortable, you never have to be scared, um, and. You know, they almost suggest that you're never going to get sick and you're never going to die, and and of course that probably is not true. <laughs> um, but it's it's I don't know if it starts with parents or if it if it starts with uh, culture or government because more and more, and this is something I'm I'm sympathetic sometimes, or at least I try to interpret some of AOC's comments sympathetically, um, particularly though you know she she talks about. Never growing up with prosperity when she was a kid, even though she uh, you know by any measure in human history, she was one of the most prosperous uh, teenagers in the history of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and she talks a lot about dignity. and I, I feel like I feel like in some ways, capitalism has created so much prosperity and and essentially eliminated the fear of starving to death, which was the human condition for. The entirety of of global history, um, we have this new problem where where people that don't have to get up in the morning in order to eat, and and go work and struggle and hopefully make it through the day that that they they now have this this the identity crisis where, you know, who am I? Do I matter? How do I find dignity in life? And so so hopefully it goes full circle where people actually once again discover that. There's actually dignity in work there's dignity in in self-reliance and and taking responsibility uh, failing all of these things that apparently we're not allowed to do anymore i i feel like uh, humans without those things are are not really human anymore
1: yeah i mean when you take failure out of the equation which if you boil everything you're talking about down it's ultimately failure, you know, uh, danger is failure to be safe. Uh, dying from COVID is failure to comply with, you know, whatever regulations or whatever, um, failure to win in a, uh, a baseball game, you know? So then you have participation trophies to make everyone feel better. So there's no such thing as loss anymore. Like that, that's what we're trying to get rid of. We're trying to get rid of the idea of loss where. Loss is actually a large part of capitalism. You know, like last year when all these bailouts were happening, um, and not that they've stopped, but when they started happening big time, um, a lot of people were saying, this is capitalism failing. And I remember screaming like, no, that's not true. This is us not letting, uh, you know, not letting people fail, which is part of capitalism. Like the whole idea of capitalism is the risk that you're not going to succeed to succeed. It's not guaranteed success. It's not guaranteed wealth. And so you're right. Like just by removing the risk factor, the possibility of failure, we have made ourselves inhuman and we've removed the struggle. And when you remove the struggle, you also remove the feeling of triumph (laughs) because what triumph without struggle, you know? Yeah. The, the, the struggle, the, the journey,
0: the process of failing at succeeding and succeeding and finding new ways to work through things. Um, to me, that the, the satisfying moments in my life are typically preceded by great discomfort, um, you know, professional or, or otherwise, um, where I had to sort of take a risk. You know, I'm thinking of uh, another guest I had on my show. Uh, you, you may or may not know him, a guy named Matthew Crawford. Um, he, do, do you know who this is? He he wrote a book recently called Why We Drive.
1: Yep, I actually listened to an interview he did about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, like, and and you can certainly relate to this, but his his whole point is that um, automation and and automatic cars. He's got a big bug about that. Um, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> yeah, are are you are you with him on this one?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, completely. Um, part of it is I learned to drive a truck on a 10-speed transmission and that was just exhilarating to me uh because i knew how to drive a five-speed manual car but when you get in a truck it's you know you're shifting every few seconds and when you get to a hill and you have a heavy load you got a downshift and so it just connects you with the machine like you are an extension of the machine it's not an upstairs downstairs relationship anymore like you are you are there. You're part of it. And then these automatic trucks started coming out, like, you know, kind of mainstream, like 10 years ago, and it just removed that completely. It also made, in my opinion, it's not as effective either, because, uh, you know, trying to take a hill the right way, or, you know, try when if you get stuck in the snow, they're not as effective. But what it was um, wasn't that automatic transmissions were so much better It was actually that all these people just couldn't drive manual transmissions anymore so they were switching them out uh but luckily today i still i drive an 18 speed manual transmission in the truck i'm in now but i would honestly probably quit if they made me drive an automatic because it just (laughs) it just removes you from the equation you're just a supervisor you're no longer in the trench anymore you're no longer you know fighting the good fight anymore and i'm i'm a bit of a romantic and i take this stuff a little bit too far but um i agree with him like once you've removed people from not just driving but just any process in general you know like everything is delivered all your food is fast food uh you don't learn how to fix anything anymore have you read uh zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance uh that whole idea of like when you're actually working on your machine it gives you a whole different relationship with it and everything I mean we've just been completely removed from how our world works and you know I think we actually saw the consequences of that last year when everyone was hoarding everything and hiding in their houses because they didn't know how to do anything like no one plants their own food anymore no one knows how to uh stay self-sufficient for more than a couple days and I don't think it's a good trend um so i am i'm 100 I'm on board with matthew crawford with you know what he talks about and uh, i actually haven't read the book i've just seen the interview he did but um yeah i think the more and more removed we get from how our world works uh you know the the less human we become and the more out of control the world gets like the the more things progress without us actually being along for the ride and you know it gets kind of scary (laughs) we're kind of on the precipice of that happening right now i think
0: yeah like he he uses uh he talks about science fiction movies and sort of the most dystopian stories are always ones where humans have been relieved of all their responsibilities and at that point they're sort of like vegetables or automatons and you know the most extreme example of that might be in the matrix where you're you're all plugged into your like food pods yeah. And and if if we're to believe that the goal in life is to be safe and well fed, you might as well go into the matrix, right? Because you're safe and well fed, you just don't have a life. You're you're not a human being anymore. And and that's probably like that's one of the stories we probably need to tell to young people who are trying to figure out where they belong in this this sort of left right tribal. Thing that we're doing right now, and you know everybody's hungry to find something else, and and one of the reasons I want to talk to you is you you're one of the young people. How old are you? I don't even know. Twenty seven. I could be twenty to forty five. That's what everyone thinks. So (laughs) yeah, you're so you're kind of an old man at this point, but we'll pretend that you're still young. All right. And and you know that that you're sort of my um, guinea pig for. How young people might be turned on to what J.P. Sears calls "dangerous liberty," right? Mm-hmm. The 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 danger of failing, the the thrill of succeeding and accomplishing and doing something. Um, that that is the alternative story to people, you know, primarily the woke left, but I, I I I get some of this in the authoritarian nationalist right as well. You know, this this promise that elect me and I will make you safe. I will take care of you, a chicken in every pot. You know, It's the same story, told different ways. And and I, I wonder a little bit about, about your journey to discovering liberty and, and somewhere along the way you ended up uh, working for Tulsi Gabbard's campaign and now you're a big L libertarian. Tell us a little bit about that journey.
1: Yeah, sure. So I feel like most people... Come to liberty intellectually through reading books, watching documentaries, listening to podcasters. It really wasn't that way for me. Um, I started working, not uh, well. Yeah, I started working full time during the summers when I was 16. I was working 45 hours a week at a lumber yard, and then when the school year started, I'd work two hours after school every day, and then all day Saturday. Um, and then you know just went right into the workforce out of high school, uh, working 50 hours a week uh you know moved out of the house when i was 18 uh and you know just was making six figures by the time i was 22 i think so um i've always been in the in the workforce and in the real world like seeing how things work i didn't have this college phase that most people have and you know where most people become socialist at first and then they slowly start discovering oh i don't think this like I, i i was one of the only kids in my class who had to pay for the fuel insurance and maintenance and registration and everything on my own car. So I was a a capitalist from (laughs) pretty early on. Um, And Rand Paul in 2014 caught my attention when he was filibustering John Brennan's nomination for CIA director. So I started following him pretty closely. And um, I had been kind of a neocon Republican growing up, like a really hard right evangelical type of guy. And I started moving away from that once I got out of the house, um, and then he started really pulling me into the political liberty movement. Um, so I was all I was 100% behind him in 2015, 2016, and then he, you know, didn't do well, um, and I wasn't into Trump or Hillary, obviously. So I did end up voting for Gary Johnson, but I just wasn't impressed with his campaign or the Libertarian Party as a whole. So I actually through, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019, I didn't even refer to myself as a libertarian. I would tell people I was an independent just because (laughs) I wasn't impressed with what the libertarian party or even like the libertarian movement stood for, because the libertarian movement sort of embraced Trump a little bit in 2016. And uh, then the other half of it just kind of fell apart and didn't do anything. So I, I didn't really Look at that as a banner that i wanted to pick up even though i agreed with the sentiments of uh you know like Rand paul's run uh but i sort of threw national politics in the trash until uh tulsi gabbard started running in 2020 and i had no idea who she was i'd never heard of her Uh, i found out about her i think in like august or september of 2019 and um you know she was the closest thing to me that was running for president <laughs> you know she was against you know most of the uh, overseas involvement she wanted to end the patriot act she wanted to end the war on drugs she wanted criminal justice reform uh you know she didn't like executive orders and the, the fact that the executive branch was gaining so much power um so i definitely disagreed with her on several issues but she was running a pretty principled campaign on issues that i really cared about and i never really thought she could win but i thought you know she can really push the overton window in the right direction on a few of these issues and like you were saying earlier it doesn't really matter what someone actually stands for as much as it does what people think they represent and even though she had a bunch of views i disagreed with like if you ask people what is Tulsi Gabbard? Everyone would say, oh, she's the anti-war candidate. So, you know, her Medicare positions or gun control positions, uh, first of all, wouldn't be things that she would have control over if she got elected, but it's also not what anyone thought about when they heard of her. They thought, oh, this is an anti-establishment, anti-DNC, anti-war Democrat. So for me, that was enough to support her for president. And I lived in New Hampshire at the time, and she spent like, 90% of her time there. So I actually got to meet her several times, talked to her quite a bit. Uh, I was pretty close with the campaign. And it just really uh, red-pilled me to how evil the Democrat establishment is. I mean, they were so bad to her. And I I knew they were liars, and I knew that they weren't on our side, but I didn't realize how friggin' evil they are. It just made my blood boil. Um, And, you know, they just straight up removed her from debates that she qualified for. They had Mike Bloomberg and uh, I think it was Michael Bennett who was polling at like less than 1% in New Hampshire when she was polling at like almost 8% at one point point. and then they wouldn't let her on the debate stage and they let them on and there's just like all this crazy stuff that made me really realize how evil everyone who's running the show is. Uh, so then after she uh, you know, dropped out and endorsed Biden, I was like, okay, I guess I'll give this stupid Libertarian Party thing another look. And that's when I started my podcast in May of 2020. And I was just kind of all on board. I was like, look, this, you know, this is a kind of a joke of a party, but it's all we got. We got to do something. So I interviewed a bunch of candidates who were running for office all around the country uh, in the Libertarian Party. and you know just tried to draw attention to them and I just didn't get much traction until the beginning of this year uh, when I came across Dave Smith's sites and he really liked what I was doing he liked that I was trying to focus on uh, you know big tent issues that bring people together and kind of put the petty stuff aside and then he started promoting me and from there I just kind (laughs) of kind of got where I am today just you know once one person promotes you another guy sees you wants to have you on talk to you and then your brand just grows from there. It's been really amazing and surreal. And I'm, I'm grateful to everyone like you for, you know, bringing me on and letting me talk. It's, uh, it's really cool. So
0: you, you brought up something that I want to go back to, because I've been struggling with how to sort of explain this and 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 create some, some system to this, this theory that I have without sounding like a, a total tinfoil hat wing nut. But, you know, the way that um, the corporate media treated Tulsi Gabbard was clearly a collusion between the political machine and this, in this case, the Democratic machine. But I'm, I think we could actually call it just the political machine and corporate media because the, you know, the the game was rigged in a way, exactly the way we saw the Republican Party treat Ron Paul before that, and until this moment, it it. It didn't remind me of exactly what you see with the, the ongoing conversation about COVID, like what we're allowed to say on social media, what we're not allowed to say, and and who might be the sort of uh, string pullers that are telling the media what that is. And it, you know, think about the big advertisers in in uh, in political campaigns of the Republican and Democratic parties. So that's their masters, right? They work for those guys. And in the context of COVID, it might be pharmaceutical companies, but it also might be um, government itself. I mean, I think the last COVID bill—I can't keep track—but the last COVID bill had like a billion dollars for education about vaccines. So maybe this is maybe this is just public choice theory 101, where where the media is in cahoots with. The interests that control the process, whether it be the Democratic Party or or Pfizer, I don't know what it is, but it it seems like uh, it explains how all of this is is directed in a certain way because it's more profitable.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, when I first started realizing that that was the case in general was. Um, You know, when the when the media turned on Donald Trump for meeting with Kim Jong-un, like, I just I was like, wait a second. I thought we were all worried that we were going to nuclear war. That's what you've been telling us the last couple of weeks. And now that he's meeting with him and establishing some sort of peace deal. Now it's the worst thing in the world and you're upset about it. And that was when I realized, you know, boy, these guys really they really suck. They're not on our side. They're just trying to stoke fear. And then after you know being on tulsi's campaign it was just blatantly obvious and um i think that you know when people describe the cathedral or whatever this cabal of um you know big government big business and big media that just feed off each other and create these cycles where they uh, just give more power to each other and we've seen that every time there's been a crisis because uh, when things are scary, the government can take away your rights. The media can get a bunch of ratings, and then big businesses tend to profit. And that uh, it's been extremely explicitly that way with COVID, uh, because the the media can get a bunch of ratings about scaring people about how many people are dying, and then business big businesses you know can crush small businesses because they can stay open while uh, small businesses are forced to close and they get all sorts of bailouts and everything. And then the government you know is passing all this stuff about how they can track you more and you know they're trying to get vaccine passports through things like that so I mean it just happens every time and I think they're I think they're getting a little sloppy with it now because um the vaccine passport man that's just really not popular at least where I live people really don't like that in Utah we just had a uh um we just had a protest in front of the business interim committee for utah because they wanted to hear what the um citizens of utah thought about mandatory vaccinations and almost a thousand people showed up and only a few dozen people supported it so i think that you know they're they're getting a little bit too 1984 and they're not being smart with the brave new world style because i tend to think if you can pitch the government as your friend that's there to protect you from the evil bad guy, people are not going to push back as much. It's when you start telling them you are going to do this or else, that's when you start scaring people and they start pushing back and that's kind of why I'm a little bit happy that Biden won the presidency because Trump was sort of viewed as this purveyor of liberty when he really wasn't and the frog could, you know, slowly get boiled without jumping out of the pot, but The frogs are jumping out of the pots everywhere now because Biden is kind of dumb and so is his administration and they're just, you know, they're just saying blatantly authoritarian stuff that is scaring people. And I actually think that's good because people are pushing back and you're seeing governors start to defy federal mandates and you're starting to see states want to take their power back and. I don't know if this would have happened otherwise, you know, so I, I'm actually a little bit of a fan of the the craziness that's going on because normal people see that and they're like, no, I don't want this.
0: Yeah. It's kind of a, I mean, it's a wake up or a red pill or something because the, to me, the lockdowns particularly have really been a war on the working class and, and it creates haves and have nots and, you know, um you i suspect you're you're considered an essential worker right because you're you're allowed to move your trucks and move move products to to all the laptop class waiting for that to be delivered right
1: yes um i mean i don't move groceries or supplies or anything it's all heavy equipment but with the booming housing market and everyone moving out of the cities and all these subdivisions going up we've been moving heavy equipment like crazy because they needed to build all these new houses and everything. So yeah, I've, I haven't lost any business since I got the job. I've been working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week, pretty much straight through the whole thing.
0: But I always like that the logic of, of lockdowns, you know, people have to stay at home to keep each other safe, except for the people that have to produce and deliver the things I need to live safely in my home while I work from my laptop. And it's, it's such an elitist, anti-working class attitude. And now you have this, this wave of, of nurses and, and other people working in the trenches that are either being fired, being intimidated to leave, or are going to be fired. Um, to me, that's that's got to be sparking a counter-revolution where people that didn't used to care about philosophy or values or politics. well, they they always cared about values, but they they didn't think politics was in any way relevant to them. it It seems like a wake-up call and and it suggests to me a new coalition that libertarians, small l, big l, whatever could 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 uh, could step in and say, Hey, we got this thing.' It's called uh, Freedom and the Freedom to Do What You Want as Long as You Don't Hurt People or Take Their Stuff. It strikes me that in some ways, unfortunately, all of this chaos creates a moment, an opportunity for to, to, to turn people on to this new idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the least effective thing we could do right now is argue over privatizing traffic lights or getting rid of driver's licenses or... Even like, you know, I mean, I, I think immigration is an important issue, but to argue over like open borders, to argue over doing it right now, like, I mean, it's so far down the road, you know, like talk talk about things that are applicable to what's happening right now. What can we actually get done now? What How can we move the needle in the right direction? And talk about the things that people care about. Like people really care about medical freedom. They really care about having the right to make their own decisions about their own bodies people really care about <laughs> their business being allowed to be open people really care about their money being taken from them and sent overseas to pakistan and israel and saudi arabia while we're stuck in our houses you know like all this stuff really matters to people and so that's what we should talk about and show them that we have solutions for it um but libertarians need to get out of their own way because they it's it's sexier to talk about the the fringe issues and show like how principled you are and how perfect and you know thought out everything is instead of saying well you know what we could move this issue in the right direction right now and we might have to work with the republicans or we might have to work with the Democrats, or maybe this governor that we don't like is going to do it, or maybe this congressman who we really disagree on this issue is actually going to push this one particular issue we like. But, you know, I mean, you just got to get over it. Like, you got to be pragmatic and realize, you know, how is liberty going to be achieved in my lifetime in any way? Um, Because we we like to think that there's just going to be this moment where everyone realizes, oh, you know, freedom is better, and the state's just going to dissolve, and everyone's going to be happy and we're all going to respect property rights and we're going to live in Ancapistan. And I, you know, I don't know how anyone could honestly think that after watching the last year and a half, because to me, it's very obvious people are extremely susceptible to authoritarianism because they value comfort over everything else. And authoritarianism provides immediate comfort. So, you know, you got to you got to connect with people where they already are and then bring them your way instead of standing over here and screaming at them about how stupid they are because they're never going to listen to you um and that was actually what i really liked about tulsi gabbard is she was good at doing that like libertarians could learn a lot from her style of meeting people where they are talking to them like they're human and then trying to form some sort of relationship with them i think that's 100 percent what we got to do
0: you know, a lot of the issues you mentioned—lockdowns uh, and essential versus non-essential workers, vaxports, um, being mandated to get vaccinated in order to to keep your job—these um, are all like super big populist issues, right? Uh, they also happen to be super fundamental core values of libertarianism that you that you don't do that to people. Um, so, and I know some libertarians sort of freak out. About the the p word populism, but but I I think liberty should be popular, and I think I think we can uh, we can sort of step in in this moment and and offer an alternative to this this intolerant authoritarianism wherever it comes from. Right now, it feels like it's all coming from the left, um, but uh, but I think it can come from both sides and. And I was I, I wanted to sort of wrap up with a conversation that you had with Dave Smith that I that I thought was pretty important about tolerance. And you look at the the tribalism, red versus blue, conservative versus liberal, and in in their worst representations of those tribes, it's all about my values, and I'm going to use the political process to destroy anybody that disagrees with my values, like personal values. How do I live my life? You know, Who am I going to marry? Uh, where do I go to church? Do I go to church at all? And it strikes me that, that libertarians have the magic solution to this, which is the word tolerance. Expound on that.
1: Yeah. So the left likes to think that it's tolerant, but they're not. They want you to accept everything that they believe as truth. And, you know, some libertarians sometimes fall into this trap, too. But they don't you know, there's a difference between acceptance and tolerance. I don't have to accept your worldview. You know, if I'm an atheist and you're a Christian, I don't have to accept what you believe as true. You don't have to accept what I believe is true. We just have to tolerate each other we just have to not hurt each other over it. we have to understand like you have the right to believe what you want and you have the right to live the way you want as long as it doesn't infringe on my rights and um you know i think this goes to abhorrent beliefs you know as l- i mean you can have the worst beliefs in the world as long as you're not going to use aggression to enforce them like if if you are a you know, a disgusting, racist human being, but you're going to live on your property and leave people alone. You know, other than trying to verbally converse with you and change your mind, I don't think I should do anything to you. I think you should be left alone as long as you're leaving people alone. Uh, So, you know, there's just this thought policing going on. And it does come from both sides. You know, we saw it like 20 years ago, more heavily from the right. You know, it was like the anti-Satanic or anti-Muslim, you know, that whole movement. And nowadays it's more from the left. It's, you know, accepting people who are, you know, transgender or whatever. And I'm just, you know, like we don't have to accept any of this stuff. Like you can have your beliefs as traditional as you want them or as progressive and new age as you want them as long as you're just going to let people live the way they want if they're not hurting you. Um, And I think that that just really had to be explained for a lot of people because there's a disconnect there. You know, they just they just can't fathom letting someone be letting someone say horrible things that they disagree with. But I think we have so much tension now because there's so much control i mean everyone like you said it's all about using political power to punish your enemies once you're in charge that's why the tension exists you know like there isn't um you know dave and i have talked about this a lot there isn't a lot of tension with religion and even though that's like a huge disconnect people have the state doesn't dictate religion you know there's no requirement that you have a certain religion so you can believe someone is gonna burn in hell for disagreeing with you, and then the other guy can believe that you're delusional. But it doesn't matter. That's like the most fundamental disagreement you could ever have. But since there's no controlling force dictating how you believe, that's an issue that can just get swept under the rug. But something super dumb, like you know <laughs> what you think about Dr. Seuss is somehow a huge issue now, and it's because of the system that is controlling everything, controlling information, controlling how you think, controlling how you speak. Um, so if you remove control, I think you allow people to coexist. And that's the difference between tolerance and acceptance.
0: Yeah, and then once you, once you remove that control and and get to tolerance, I think what the machine is afraid of is that we might get to know our neighbor who we disagree on some really important stuff yeah. and still realize that our neighbor is actually a good person. And that's that's the danger for the the people that want to exploit our fears and 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 demonize the other, right? Cause you know the the the, the core thing in politics is is using demonization to scare us a lot about those other people and what what they're going to do that we don't like so like it it all gets to you know the, the the core libertarian value and I guess you guys said this but you know you know the first the first value is don't hurt people and don't take their stuff mm-hmm. but another one would be would be tolerance and tolerance in in some cases might get to acceptance. And you don't have to embrace someone else's personal choices, but you could say, like, you know, you do you, I'm going to do me. And and that's good enough. And and Mike Lee, in a very Senator Mike Lee, conservative from Utah in a very different context, he says that, you know, the the genius of of the American system was that it was decentralized. And we said, um, you know, federalism and individualism was going to allow um, states and communities and individuals and families to make different choices. And yet we're all going to get along. Um, that only works when we're free. And I think so I, I think I think there are probably um, civil libertarians on the left and conservatives on the right that that get this. But to me, this is the sweet spot. This is how how libertarians connect. we We could solve all the problems but we just got to turn people on to the solutions.
1: Yeah, uh, one thing you said there that's so true is that the fear the establishment has is that we're going to realize your neighbor is a human. Uh, The other thing is you actually might end up agreeing with them on something if they talk to you about it. You know, that's that's what they're really scared of. And that's what um, not just the establishment, but individuals are scared of. They're scared that, you know, I've established whatever belief this is and if I talk to somebody else, they might say something that makes sense and makes me start questioning why I think this should be this certain way. Um, and you know that that's uh, that's where we've really got to hit hard. We got to, you know, we've got to get people to want to know what is true instead of desiring instant comfort. You know, this all this all just really comes down to getting people away from caring about. Instant gratification and instant comfort because it just leads you. You know the road to hell is paved with instant comfort. I mean that that's how we got where we are now. Um, I'm a huge fan of Mike Rowe, and you know he talks yeah. about this stuff a lot uh, with the workplace and just living. I mean the stuff that we've been talking about in general with the whole idea that safety is first. You know that's not true. We've been told that forever, but of course it's not first. If safety was first. We wouldn't do anything and now we're actually entering a society where safety is becoming actually first and so we're not doing anything and that also applies to the intellectual world like safety first in an intellectual world is a very dangerous world because you're not allowed to say a lot of provocative things that might make people think you're supposed to shut it off and say what the status quo wants you to so safety and instant gratification have got to go if we want to maintain liberty and freedom and it's got to go in pretty much every corner of our world
0: so what you're saying is that the government should mandate that everyone has to learn how to drive a manual 40 wheeler is that right
1: ironically that might actually give us a better world you know maybe a mandate could help us that that might be one that i would support that's that's (laughs) not Yeah, (laughs) that's
0: your career as a as a libertarian podcaster is destroyed at this moment. How do people find more of your stuff? How do they find your podcast and the other things you're doing?
1: Yeah, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Reed Coverdale and I'm getting throttled there pretty heavily now. I've got like no interaction compared to what I had a few weeks ago, but follow me there. Uh, And then I'm on YouTube as the Naturalist Capitalist and Odyssey. And then you can also find me on audio podcasts supported by Anchor. So uh, that would be, you know, Apple, Spotify, all those. And I I typically do a couple episodes a week. I go live on YouTube and then download the audio versions a couple weeks later. Um, I'm actually planning on having Tulsi Gabbard on sometime. Uh, This has been in the works for months, but she's really hard to nail down. Um, But I've had a lot of interesting guests, Peter Schiff. Abby Martin, Dave Smith, Tom woods, um, hoping to have you on soon sometime um, and you know it's a it's a good it's a good program. We talk about a lot of the stuff we talked about tonight, talk about a lot of things people don't like to discuss because it's uncomfortable, but um, it's really taken off, and I'm hopeful for the future and thanks for having me on, Matt. I really appreciate it. This is great. yeah, this is awesome like the the one of the
0: best pods I ever did was with Thomas Massey and Tulsi Gabbard. Which, to me, suggests that there is sort of this new coalition forming that's that's liberty-ish, and sometimes that's good enough, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's
0: better than throw, where we're at.
1: Yeah, throwing away the ideal to actually attain something real.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah this was cool. Thank you so much. All right.